Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. For those who are watching and listening who haven't seen Defunct, Explain to us or explain to them uh, what a defunct show was like back in the 80s and what what one might be like today. Well, basically, the sort of the same high energy, high energy. I mean, I mean, we were famous. We would play two or three hour sets. I mean, a defunct show at the Knitting Factory, we, we would play four or five hours. But this is in a tradition of the great functions from James Brown to George Clinton. You know, it's not a 45 minute set. It's a two hour set or three hour set. One, one groove might be 45 minutes. <laughs> right, there you go, you got let it develop. Yeah. So, uh, but the show is always explosive and it's still, I, I still like to say it's, it's explosive. My most recent tour in 2019, I, I used two bass players, uh, Kim Clark and a super bass player from Mauritius who's living in Paris named Lindley Monty, who's on the Master Boat album. Uh, but he plays bass and keyboards. And this was a total, I can't understand why these big red companies, this is a total unique sound. I had two bass players, one playing keyboards and bass. And uh, it's total unique sound. I had a baritone sax. And uh, yeah, and again, it was, and no guitarist. This was great. And uh, so, I mean, Defunct has always been evolving. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't know how they, how we have evolved because the documentation is not, uh, wasn't mainstream. Mm. Yeah, well, we're hoping and to help, help correct that. Right, there's a lot of videos out there, YouTubes and stuff, but, uh, that's, that's probably my only regret that I never, we never really got mainstream coverage. Uh, well, I don't know if it's a regret because I'm still breathing, so I can't complain. So, <laughs> so, 
So, so you mentioned uh, Kim, Joe. Uh, she's been around uh, with you for so long. What is it about right. her style and what she brings to the mix that, you know, has just enamored her to you all this time? Absolutely. She's a totally unique, you know, insane woman, and I love her. Uh, she brings a, a unique slap style to the bass that uh, it's hard to find anybody that, you know, can reproduce that. But uh, and Kim has always been loyal. She's, she, you know, she's been on stage with me for more than forty years, and uh, we still continue to tour together. When I get another tour, I'll call Kim because uh, Kim is reliable, unique, and she's funky. She's the funkiest woman in the world. That's the way I introduce her when we do the shows. The funkiest woman in the world, <laughs> Kim Clark. <laughs> yeah it's great too because uh, you were talking before about um how you know blending races and all that but also uh, genders and just everything you know should be yeah. part of the whole mix and not even yeah. think about it right well it's one world i mean uh, i've been preaching this one world one people we're all just you know we're all here together let's let's make the best of it let's let's do it together uh and basically, I mean, Defunct has been preaching that unity and one world since the beginning. And, a, and maybe it might be kind of a bizarre way that we preached it, but that's what we're talking about. We had women, we had mixed races, we've had a, yeah, a potpourri of, 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 of artists, different persuasions on stage. And, uh, but that's what it's about. And that's, that's what makes music interesting because we come from different corners of the world or different corners of the room or from different, different venues, different genres. But it's all good. It's like Duke Ellington's, you know, Duke Ellington said it's only two types of music, bad and good. So when you got the right mix, you can't go wrong. It's got the music, if it's, if it's good, it's good. And I, I think, you know, although you weren't the top of the billboard charts, you know, the influence is undeniable. We talked about some of those other 80s groups, right. but also I think even into this century, Joe, you know, when you're looking at groups like um, Galactic or Lettuce or Dumpster Funk or um, Big Old Nasty Get Down or um, right. Weapon of Choice, Snarky Puppy, it just goes on and on. I think all of them owe some debt and an influence from Defunct Ford. I thank you for saying that. I mean, it, I believe it's true too, but just because we were here then. But uh, I can hear that. I mean, I, I follow Snarky Puppy. I don't really follow them, but I've heard them. I've heard them live and I hear a lot of these bands. And uh, hey, I'm honored to be, uh, that is an honor in itself. Even if I didn't make the big bucks, okay. I survived, and it's an honor to be an influence on the generations, on generations of musicians. So that's great. Absolutely. What what might be one or two of the most unforgettable live experiences or memories that you could share with us? Hmm. Ooh. Well, I guess I have to say. My favorite experience was when we played, we opened for James Brown at the Paramount Theater in Staten Island. And when we were performing, 
we would the way the stage was set up it was a it's an old theater in the backstage there was a, a like a fire escape staircase that went up to the dressing room james brown stood out at the top of those stairs because he could see the stage he watched our entire show religiously he watched every bit of our show then we finished we you know we were young guys we said oh yeah we we kicked ass you know we're gonna make james brown pay <laughs> but, <laughs> so when james brown set started the band opened up and uh it was okay you know playing some okay song and then we were like oh we got this we got this now we we've destroyed james but then when James came out on stage, the band went to another level. The whole show went to another level, and my God, and the, we were on our knees in the dance floor. We just, we, I was, James, James. It was so funky. He gave me my first real funk lesson. But he watched us. He studied me. And then he gave us the greatest lesson I will ever have. And then he kicked our ass. He kicked Defunct's ass so bad. I loved it. Uh, but that was a great inspiration, even now, to me, to continue. And it's just that uh, when James Brown took the time to watch me and then destroy me. <laughs> even, in, even in the 80s, he was bringing it like that. Sure. In the 80s, he was, this was a time when James Brown had the problems with the IRS. Uh, they took his radio stations and he lost a lot of money. But music is the root. So when he on that stage at that at, at that podium, it was about his show business. And that's what he was bringing. I said, yes, sir, James. Godfather, sir. <laughs> But I learned a lot from him that night, and uh, never forget that night. Wow! Did did you ever uh, share any bills with uh, Parliament Funkadelics? No, I, I I never did that. I wish I would have. I mean, I saw the shows. I never shared any bills with them, and I saw them back in the day. I saw them even in Amsterdam uh, several years ago here. Uh, but unfortunately, we never we never shared a bill with. With Funkadelic, but how can you? I mean, that's a four-hour show. That's true. Yeah. You know, very few people share the stage. They don't have opening bands for Funkadelic. No, usually if they did, it was like one of their own side groups. One of their groups, right? Yeah. Brad the Funkenstein or somebody, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I assume never with like Bootsy or any of those others too. No. I, uh, I hung out with Maceo and them and the band, and I know Fred Wesley well. I, I played with Pee Wee Ellis on some other shows of, of his own here in Europe. Rest I in told peace. You I played yeah. with Fred on some shows here. I used to run into Maceo and the band in Germany a lot. They would defunct, would be staying at the same hotel. We would, you know, eat together, talk, talk trash, talk music trash. But uh, Maceo's great also, perfectionist. And uh, always on the money, on the money, professional. Yeah, I think he has an approach to it kind of like 
yours in a way, because I know I've heard you say that you feel like you have sort of like almost a military approach to uh, being punctual and just getting through the show like it's, you know, very regimented, even though it's loose and free. But, you know, there's certain aspects of it that you need to keep on. Right. And uh, Maceo is like that, too. He's all buttoned down. Yeah. Professional. And I love that. I mean, you got to be whatever you're doing, you have to do it in a professional manner and be focused. And uh, because that's the only way the people going to you're going to make believers out of the people. And that's our job to make believers in the funk. How did you uh, connect with Candy Dolfer? Well, you know, I used to come to Holland in the in the mid seventies, and I would uh, visit the jazz clubs here, and I met her father, Hans Dolfer. This was in the early in the mid seventies, and later on in the eighties, Hans, when no, Defunct was playing the North Sea Jazz Festival, Hans would bring Candy to our show. She might have been 13 or 14 to check it out because he really was trying to, you know, feeding her with everything musically he could. When I moved to Harlem, the first person I called was Hans Dolphin. You know, I need a gig. And uh, he said, well, come on, just come on, bring her in. And he gave me my first shows in, in Harlem. And eventually I became very close friends with the family, with Hans, his wife, and with Candy. Uh, and since then, I've done a few shows with Candy and Hans in Switzerland. I did a show with Candy in Hanover, Germany. Uh, but we're all very, very good friends with the family. They're very sweet people. And Candy's doing very well now with the Ladies of Soul and uh, in Holland. And uh, but she's yeah, just as kind as she can be and uh, and highly professional. So you kind of watched her grow. I'm sorry. So you, you kind of watched her grow up, basically. Right. From a, from a young teenager. and But now, yeah, she's running, she's running the place here in Holland now. <laughs> were, were you surprised uh, from afar when she, you saw that she got with Prince and that she was, you know, a professional? No, I wasn't surprised. Well, because uh, she's, she's, first of all, she's beautiful and she can play. What a, I mean, what a commercial item she was she is and that's where her career really got a boost when she got with prince because i mean prince was smart i mean at at that time uh, there weren't that many ladies playing like that and that looked that good on stage so that was uh it was a no-brainer for prince and a no-brainer i understood quite yeah why why and and it really helped her career here it catapulted her to stardom because she played with Prince. Oh yeah, that'll and do I, it. Yeah, yeah, she, <laughs> right, she uh, it catapulted her to the top here in Howard. Cool, well, Joe, let's uh, talk about Master Volt now, finally. Um, okay. You kind of gave us an indication, but why did it take 20 years, basically? I think it's 20 years, my math is right, more than 20 years to, to come back with another studio record. Right, it's 20 years, 95. Well, because it's not up to the artist. It's up to the people that want to sponsor you. It's up to the big record companies. I'm not independently wealthy. 
And so it's not up to me, well, I want to do another studio recording. I need somebody who was, luckily in Holland, I ran into a Zip Records, Arthur Herman, who's from San Francisco, and also doing business in Holland. And he came and discovered me, and I got involved with some projects with him. Uh, first, the first of which was uh, uh, Allergy for the U.S. We made a, a recording of Allergy for the U.S. in which James Chance was a guest on that record, too. And we did a recording here in Holland. After that, uh, Arthur wanted to produce a defunct record, studio record which uh, I think is one of my greatest uh, studio productions ever. And so we went to the south of France for three weeks. We recorded, had the band living there. We living in the studio, eating together, the perfect studio situation, swimming pool, I mean, in the countryside of southern France. I mean, this is the first time I had that kind of luxury, uh, and it was beautiful. Because when you get the musicians, everybody just lived there for three weeks. That's when you can make some music. Nobody goes home. Nobody goes home to their other commitments or to their families. Or we were we were just there to make music, for, and that was a great feeling. And I think we made some wonderful music. And the reason it took so long is because, uh, like I said, I I was being ignored. I guess by the big companies. They, but anyway, it's what it is. Well, what it is, is a great record, you know, and I definitely <laughs> encourage viewers and listeners to check it out if they haven't already, but um, I really love uh, Circus Royale and yeah. um, uh, you updated Rocket on there. Right, the updated Rocket, Rocket 2015. Yeah, yeah. You know, I got, well, I got that idea because when I was a kid, Gene Chandler, you remember the singer Gene Chandler? Yeah. Rainbow 65, Rainbow 66. And that's why I said, well, I can do Rocket like that, too. I can do Rocket uh, 95, Rocket 2015. It's just like a, a little a bumped up version. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad you listened to that master vote. I mean, I, I think it's one of the, and I'm, I'm working with, some, uh, with, a, with a lyric writer here in Holland, Hilarious Hofstetter. And uh, we made a great production and, uh, and a video uh, a filmmaker here. We did a video, uh, Voodoo Basics, one of the songs on that record. We did a, we did a, a great video from that here in Holland. But yeah, I mean, hey, it's huh? it's jazz, it's jazzy and funky. That record, right, right, and that's always been defunct. A little jazz, a little funk. I'm a little mix it up, and uh, but it's a great production, like the first record was a was a good and that's the, the thing is you just need the time and the money to do a great production time money and a place but is that still as critical nowadays when you can you know record on you know your own equipment and you can push it out uh -huh. through the internet and is it is it still you know that necessary well I mean, you can do these remote recordings. I mean, well, they, they, they've changed our ears. Think about it. They've changed our ears to where we're used to hearing these, you know, these keyboard bass lines that people that's in the computer. We're used to hearing that now. If you listen to R&B music now, most of it is not live music, not live instruments. So I'm saying we've been conditioned to accept this over a period of 10, 20 years. Now we listen to, and uh, yeah, uh, 
Anyway, but we're, we're, we've just been, we've, our brains have been made to say, okay, this is okay. But for me, I like going to the studio with a band, living together, eating together, rehearsing, making music in the studio. It's nothing like that whole ritual. You can never replace that with doing a remote. I send a bass part over to New York and somebody can put this on. Of course, it'll sound great. But what are we missing? We're missing the humanity in the music. We're missing the, yeah, the cohesion. We love to live together. We're missing all of that. And uh, I'm just glad that, uh, you know, I'll be out of here before they get too technical. <laughs> It's getting beyond me now, but I think music, music used to be for people and mu musicians. I mean, you see the parties George Clinton has on stage. This, this is not uh, send me a bass line, make a remote recording, or, okay, now you put the voice on. I do a lot of stuff like that here, as a matter of fact, to, to survive. People send me a bass line, make a song, put some lyrics, put the backgrounds. I do that for money. But as far as my music, I like the family concept. Well, you know. especially when you're talking about funk, I mean, so much of it is about feeding off each other and right. reacting and responding and that chemistry and that reaction that happens. Right, precise, precise, I mean, precisely. I'm saying it in Dutch, precise. But, no, but exactly, it's a feed off. You, you gotta be in touch with human nature. And I wanna know who I'm playing with. I wanna feel you. And uh, just like I said, I tell people, I've known Kim Clark for 40 some years. I, I love to hate her. <laughs> but that's great because we know each other so well on stage. I don't have to say anything. She knows where I'm going, by what I'm playing or, what, or how I'm moving. Just like the old James Brown band, they would just watch his movements. They knew where it was going. You know when the break was, when James throw his hand up, bam, that's it. But or or you you're going to be without a paycheck, yeah. <laughs> there you go, $50, there you go. But that's a tradition in the Chitlin circuit. I experienced that when I was Tyrone Davis band director. All those bands were like that from the South, all these Chitlin circuit bands, Little Milton, Tyrone Davis, Johnny Taylor. Uh, you play a wrong note, not only would you get fined, uh, Tyrone, he had a pistol in his back pocket. He just let you look at it. And he just turned around and looked at you and showed you that pistol. That pearl handle of nine millimeter in his back pocket. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> you better get it together. Right. But that's wow. a tradition. That's a discipline. Yeah. <laughs> when you're putting stuff together, Joe, um, how, how do you decide you know, whether to uh, throw in a, a solo or take it in that direction. Whether to, you know, when you're, on, on trombone, you know, yeah. when you're, when you're playing live or even in a studio recording, how do you right. decide where to put in an actual solo? Well, well, that's, you know, I'm designing the song. Uh, it's different live, but when, when you're in the studio, for instance, you, you, you sort of, you make the palette. Well, first of all, in the studio, we did say we're dealing with four minutes of time. So within four minutes, we got to make a statement. We've got to, we got to, we got to have a uh, a chorus. We got to have some verses. 
we're going to have some solos. Just basic song formula 101, just the basic song formula. So, and I just decide, and I decide on a solo, it's depending on the song, whether I want to put a guitar solo here or I want to play a trombone solo here. Uh, and I've been sort of, especially on the last, the, the, the latest records, even the studio records, I sort of reserved myself with the trombone solo to play very little solos or just small ones, but impactful, uh, crazy. But I didn't want to distract from the commercialism of the recording. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I didn't want to draw too much attention away from the song because, okay, now it's this crazy trombone player. That's taking it all the way to jazz. Mm. So I've always been very, yeah, cautious of how to place that and just to do just enough, but not too much. What what do you get the most fulfillment out of it? Uh, soloing, accompanying, or or vocalizing, or what, what really does it the most for you? I get the, the excitement out of the dance. When when the whole when the room is dancing, the movement when that vibration is in you, when that beat is in, it, infectious beat has everybody. That's that's what I look for. That's when we're all in the musicians, the audience. When we're all trapped in that infectious groove, it doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't matter whether you're soloing or singing, but as it's in the bass and drums. It's all in the bass and drums. That's where it all begins and, and ends. And so that's where we keep the people dancing. We keep the people on the floor. And uh, yeah, that's the beginning and the end, the bass and the drums. And even when I write songs, I always start with the bass line. That's where I write from, because that has to be, yeah. Nothing else works if that's not grooving. Yeah, defunct uh, was d defunct. Definitely was not known for love ballads. <laughs> right. No, no, no. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, um, I ask people all the time, and even for me, Joe, it's so hard to really effectively define funk because so much of it is just a feeling. But you know, what does funk mean to you, and how would you describe it? Well. Well, for me, funk is is rhythm, is and it's African. I mean, if we go back and 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 deal with a lot of the dances, the the drums and the and the, and the African dance, this is the beginning of funk. This is funk. This is the roots of funk, which is basically rhythm. That's why I say bass and drums. It's basically rhythm. It's the rhythm aspect. Uh, funk. The rhythm is what makes you move. And the funk has got to be well-defined. And it, most of the time it's defined in Africa with the drums, later with the drums and the bass. But the funk starts there uh, from James Brown uh, to uh, Fela Kuti. It's all, in, it's all in the groove. The groove is set up first. And then funk, yeah. We deal with lyrics. We deal with stories, stories, simple stories of humanity, of life. Uh, like you got love songs deal with love. Funk deals with shake your booty, shake your ass, you know, with dance. So 
I guess that's a pretty good description of funk. Funk is rhythm that's making you move. Uh, it's dance music. It's groove. Why do you think it is that it's kind of not gotten its um, promotion and acceptance as a genre unto itself in the same way that maybe soul or rock or country or whatever has? Well, hmm. that's a debatable question. I mean, I don't want to pull the race card, but I think it's funk is almost, it's too black, it's too groovy, it's too nasty, it's, it's too dirty. Uh, but then again, you said, so it's Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. <laughs> so, I mean, that's not, a, I, so I can't, maybe I can't use that uh, parallel, but funk is, a, is, I think it's associated a lot with, yeah, with funk, grooves, nasty, dirty, get down, you know. And it's not like it's not classical. It's not. Uh, it's not poppy. It's not uh, uh, South South Korean pop. It's not. Uh, it's uh, It's not boy boy groups. It's not Motown, which were the first boy groups. But anyway, so funk is just, and it's from the heart. It's music of the ass. It's music of your deepest recesses of your soul, your body, your your, your ass. Basically, what. If you can't dance, you never appreciate funk. Mm. You got to know how to move or you don't get it. Mm -hmm. You have to have some, whatever your move is, whether it's slight or drastic, but you got to have a connection with your body and funk. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I'm of the mind that, you know, it should have its uh, notoriety the same as like blues or any of the other genres I mentioned, you know? Sure. And maybe one day it will, hopefully, but uh, I don't, we'll see. We'll see. Do, do you think that all, all true funk has to be on the one or, uh, and if it's not, is it only funky and not pure funk? <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, well, then it has to go with how does it make you feel? How does a song make you feel? Even if it's not on the one, some kind of way is it has to make you feel uh you need to feel that resolution of funk that deep breath because <sighs> funk is the the downside of the breath inhale <sighs> and that could be the one or that can be the two or the three but wherever you wherever you lay your breath wherever you lay your hat is the funky side so, I mean, yeah, it can be funky. It doesn't have to be on the one. Bootsy says it all. And I mean, that's one way of saying it. I, I like it on the one, too. But I've heard some other funky stuff with Kelvin Bell's band, uh, like is doing some stuff in 7-4, some different time signatures. They're still funky in 5 or 7. It can still be funky. But I would say the most convincing funk is on the one. Yeah. Yeah. That's the obvious, the most obvious convincing funk is laid on the one. Yeah. I think if you're in tune with it, you can hear funk's influence in many different musics. Um, you know, even if it's not pure funk. Right. You know. Absolutely. Um 
which uh which album are you most proud of and why okay well i'm a, i'm proud of uh i'm proud of the master vote because i have been kept out of the mainstream for so long and we're still able to come up with a great album i mean in my 60s see and that's that's important i mean uh well it's important to me uh so to show you I'm, i am the funk I, I mean i believe in it and even though i never made a ton of money or widespread fame and fortune but I still made a great record in my 60s. Now, I must have been, what, 65 or something when we did that? Or 63 or 65, I don't know. That was in 2015, well, early 60s, which is, which is in a way quite remarkable for somebody who's been kept out of the mainstream his whole life. But we've been, we've been working on the fringes, on the razor's edge, so to speak, <laughs> my entire career which yeah, we, I'm survived, we survived, but uh, it definitely was not mainstream attraction, but it was definitely influencing mainstream, like you said. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd you come up with that title? Master Vote? Well, it's actually to help one of the lyric writer. That's a concept he came up with. And I thought that that was a great title because it sort of exemplifies the resolution of defunct. Uh, resolution evolution of defunct from then until now. And if I'm not a master of this groove now, I never will be. So, <laughs> so master vote, there seemed to be a, a perfect title and, uh, and, it, and it still has elements in there that you don't hear on a lot of commercial records. I think it's a, oh, yeah. Yeah. it still has the uniqueness and uh, it's, but it's, it's, it's in senior time now. It's in it's in master vote time. I mean, uh, I, I'm not a teenager anymore. I'm not 25, so it it carries. It has yeah seniority. Master vote is a, is senior funk. Well, you know, and you you talk about that, Joe. And one of the things that really um, disappoints me is you know I'll see sometimes these groups from the 70s maybe that were funk bands and maybe they come back and right. they put out a record but it's not usually that true funk you know it's got the edges or ergs are sanded off and there's right. too much mellow material and there's some right. concessions to maybe some trends and right. uh, it's like oh man why why stick to what you do great and you and and they're not and also that they're not doing today for the most part right but you're right scott and listen but in a way i'm happy with my life because thanks to europe i've been able to survive and still stick to my guns i still produce music that i believe in and without any concession unless it's a concession i want to make but uh Master Vote is as modern as anything I've ever produced. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to be able to say that, uh, that my life is complete in a way that I, at least I stuck to my guns. I'm still playing defunct style. Absolutely. I mean, personally, um, it's my favorite defunct since in America, but you know, that's just me. That's okay. So, yeah. Everybody needs a favorite. I love it. I mean, uh, 
I mean, but that's just like I tell James Brown, I, my favorite was uh, Cold Sweat, but I wonder what he would say. <laughs> but it's all good. If you got a favorite, that means there was something good about it. And uh, it touched you. And that's what we try to do. I just want to touch people. Yeah. What about, yeah. Um, do you have any uh, horn playing tips for youngsters that might be coming up or, or folks considering getting into uh, playing a horn? Yeah, I would say uh, be yourself. Like my big brother used to tell me, uh, try to develop your own sound. Don't see, because these schools now, they're producing, they're producing clones. Everybody sounds alike. Everybody has the same training. And as a result, everybody sort of sounds very similar. Uh, a, a great change from the 60s and the 50s and the 40s when there were so many unique styles of horn players. Basically, in those days, you better not sound like anybody else. You're supposed to sound like yourself. The horn should be your extension of your voice. It should be an extension of your vocabulary. It should be totally unique to your voice. That's what I would say to young people. Develop all the technique you can, but create your own voice on your instrument. Great, great advice. And I mean, they get all the YouTube videos now so they can find out exactly how to play everything. But yeah, they're just mimicking rather than right. creating. Yeah, they're creating. They, they have to go deep. And what what is my voice actually saying? That's the question that, the, that young people need to ask themselves. And the question I asked myself, well, because I had great musicians in the family. My brother was a super trumpet player, but I was like, OK, well, I got to be. But he said, be yourself, Joe. Okay, be yourself. That's the that's the key to unique. That's the first key to being unique. Be yourself. I mean, it's just like no two pupils are the same, and no two fingerprints are the same. No two horn players should sound the same. Mm -hmm. So um, I want to mention you have the uh, documentary from a few years ago, um, which is. Uh -huh. um, yeah, and Groove We Trust. So um, what prompted the creation of that? Well, it's because of my association of being in Holland. And uh, there, were, there were fortunately some people here that were glad to see me here and found me interesting, even more interesting than they found me in the States. I mean, so uh, there was a lot of interest in doing my yeah. The filmmaker Robin Van Irvin Dorans, who's done several other films, but he's he's a documentary filmmaker. He thought it would be a great idea to to do a documentary on me because uh, even when I first got to Holland, there were some short documentaries that the television did when they realized I was living in Holland. Because you know, for a couple of years after you arrive in a new country, you know, you, you the spotlight is sort of on you and. Uh, so I got a lot of attention in, and eventually uh, it culminated in that major documentary. It was a couple small ones before that that I think maybe garnered his interest in doing it on me. And also his friend was my lyric writer with Masterbolt, Hilarious Hofstetter. So this is all like a little family group here in Harlem. Robin, Hilarious, uh, the Mazip Records, and the Dolphin family, those are, those are my people in Holland and they kind of helped me to get from one place to another across the street, so so to speak. 
I got you. Well, it's really well done. I enjoyed it, and uh, I recommend that oh, too. Oh, great! Thank you. And I, I really like. I would tell the filmmaker it was great. It was great fun doing it too. I mean, we traveled up to the Caribbean. Oh, we saw. We've been we went all over to the Caribbean and had some uh, some shots of my home in Maryland and with my daughter. And it was it was. I thought it was very well done, also. Definitely, and. Uh, I also like the way it showed, you know, the band members too. Right. You know, and gave you some more about them. Right. Exactly. With John and Kelvin and, uh, and it even had a little shot of the new band, the Masterboat band toward the end of the film. You could see on there. So. Yeah. I could definitely see his, ba his bass chops that you were talking about. Right. Right. There you go. That's it. So. When you look uh, at what you've done, this incredible journey that you've been on, Joe, what accomplishment career-wise or musically are you most proud of? Oh. Well, I would say from the beginning, uh, my experiences with the Black Artist Group in St. Louis was very uh, important for me and my development. And my first tour with the Black Artist Group, I went to Paris. I was maybe 19, 20 years old. We left St. Louis and went to Paris uh, with Oliver Lake and the Black Artist Group. That was a super experience, uh, as well as uh, the greatest experiences that I've had touring with Defunct over the years. I've had some super uh, incredible tours. And not only with defunct musicians, I've, I mean, I work with a lot of jazz musicians at the same time with the Ethnic Heritage Ensemble, Cahill El Zafar, with Adam Rudolph, uh, a, a lot of jazz groups I, we worked with simultaneously. While defunct was going on, I was still doing other projects at the same time. But my pride and joy, I think, was uh, the Master Vote production. Because to me, that was a something I had been missing, a major production where I said, well, we bring the whole band together. We live together for three, four weeks. I went down there two times to mix it. So, I mean, money, this is the first time I had a chance to do a recording where money was not a big problem. And I've never, you know, yeah, I never had that in my whole career. So that was a lot of freedom. I was free to create. So I think that was, to me, that's a major, uh, a major hurdle for me. That was getting over that, that master vote. That's why I called it master vote because this is, it encapsulated my career for me. It only took I, you 40 years. It only took you 40 years to get that opportunity. Right, there you go. That's what I'm talking about. Thank you. But that's why it's so important. I mean, and, and to be able to sit here and, and speak about that now is, is a lot of pride. I have a lot of pride that we get that we did that. Um, I'll tell you something else to, to change the subject a little bit. Uh, I got asked to teach in a jazz conservatory in Italy, which I'll start. I mean, at 68 years old, somebody asked me to be a teacher. And I almost laughed at him when he asked me, but they were serious. And uh, so I'm going to start that at the end of November, just four days a week. They fly me to Italy. I teach a master's class and come back home four days a month. So for the whole school year. So that's, I thought that was funny too, but that's all because of what? Defunct. 
and my history. That's all connected to my whole uh, notoriety with the jazz groups and also with Defunct over the 40, 50 years of, uh, well, for I would say almost 50 years if we go back before Defunct started. If we go back to, yeah. 1973, 1971, when I went to Paris. That's where the career actually started. You speak any uh, Italian? No, not yet. Uh, bono. <laughs> Mongeno. I know how to ask for food. <laughs> I'll learn a little bit, I guess. You speak Dutch? Uh, Kleinbeitje. You know, I took Dutch, and I have a Dutch passport. I had to learn Dutch in school. I just don't practice it a lot because I don't work where I use the language every day. And everybody in Holland speaks English, which is a disadvantage because when they hear my accent, they start speaking English. Well, my buddy can well Netherlands. I was, you know, playing Beja. I, I, but uh, what what I need to, where I, I mean, I can count money and I can order my food and I can I can understand basic conversations. Yes. Yeah, enough to get by. Right. Yeah, I'll get by. And like I said, I got a, I had to pass the exam in school to get a Dutch passport. I had to learn the language. So I went to school here for a year and a half just so I could get to dual nationality. Hmm. So, to, to you're, gonna, so, so yeah. you're gonna be doing this teaching. Uh, what else uh, do you see in the near future for you, uh, Joe? Well, well, of course, I would like to tour with Defunct some more, and uh, but I, I need to wait until the situation is right, until I have, uh, you know, the last couple of years have been tough with Corona, but before Corona, I was struck with cancer, and I went to, 2020 was a lost year for me. I mean, I went to chemotherapy, radiation, two surgeries, and I'm just recovering now after that mess, and then the Corona came in. My last tour was in 2019 and uh, in December. And December 31st, I went in the hospital and started chemotherapy. So, but now all that's good. The cancer's gone. They say it's gone. They're pretty sure it's gone. And uh, I'm feeling better now. I'm feeling good and starting to, starting to work again. I've done some shows down in Graz at the conservatory in Austria. And I went to Croatia with some uh, Croatian musicians I work with playing defunct music. And uh, so I'm starting to get active again, but it's starting to pick up slowly. But uh, certainly by next year, I would like, I will see another defunct tour and uh, with some special guests. And uh, I don't know who that'll be. James Carter said he would love to do it. And uh, I would like to get Vernon Reed to come and do it, but we'll see, we'll see. You know, it's just so, uh, you never know who you can get when. Yeah. But that's what I would like to do. I would like to get in shape and do, you know, do another tour because I I like touring. I like I like performing live. That's I mean every every live musician loves to play. Yeah. Yeah, right. never retirement is a uh, fantasy if you're a musician, I think. You know. You no, but you just die. You, old musicians don't retire, they die. Yeah. That's like Johnny yeah. Guitar Watson, you know, just fall dead on stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so glad to hear that you're through, you know, the health challenges. So um, well, thank very you. thankful. Uh, and uh, looking forward to you getting out there. I don't know if you'll ever get stateside, but if you should. Well, I 
actually, before the corona hit, I was arranging a stateside tour with some of the Parliament Funkadelic people, some of the, one of the agents that does their stuff, Chuck Haber in upstate New York. But uh, so I, I'll try to rekindle that. But the corona put a stop on all of that for now. But we'll see. Uh, well, we'll see how this corona it seems to be back on the comeback now, especially in Europe on the rise again, the, the cases, case rise. I don't know what's going on in the States, but this, but hopefully one day we'll, I would love to tour the States and uh, under the right conditions, under good, you know, just basic conditions. I don't need much, just a good stage and a nice hotel, some good food. And, uh, and I got the musicians are basically still in New York. I can put together a killer band anytime but I would like to merge some of uh, the New York musicians with some of the musicians I worked with here in Europe that are on the master vote record and bring on. But like I said, production is about, and then again, you got to see, Scott, who's going to, I need the sponsorship, the money, the record company. Who's going to pay for a 68-year-old man to go on tour that doesn't have, uh, yeah, top 10 hits? Think about that. Well, that's why here, if you want to see any of the older groups, they're pretty much like on the, unless they are George Clinton, but separate from that, uh, you know, they do these funk fests where they're all like together, you know, and, and putting them right. all together, I guess, allows them to be able to package and sell it. Huh. Okay. That's what they're doing. Okay. Well, maybe that's what Haber wanted to do with defunct. But I mean, that's all open season. I mean, uh, I'm open to, I'm open to everything. I hope something can develop. Absolutely. And do you think you're going to do more studio work? Say that again? I said, do you think you'll do more studio work as well? Uh, well, I don't know. It's no way for me to say, I, of course, I mean, I do, I do solo studio work now, but I would love to have the occasion to bring Defunct back in the studio, of course. I always, that's always a dream that only thing is missing is the cash. Somebody, I can't afford to to sponsor, I need a record company or somebody to sponsor an event like that, a major production like that, because it's quite expensive to yeah. do a really great studio recording. And uh, But hopefully we'll have somebody that will get behind me and say, we want to see Defunct again on, so we're gonna, we're gonna put a couple, you know, a couple million behind you and we're gonna do this, Joe. I hope so. Someone who has some sense and some passion for real music. Right. We need it. We need it. And uh, like, it's nothing like live music. Nothing like it. And uh, you can't take that away. All of the uh, yeah, beat boxes and uh, you, you can't take away that energy that comes from a live show. Absolutely. It's nothing yeah. like that. Well, I don't know now with these DJs. I don't get that either. But who am I? You know. Right. Well, and Defunct, you're talking live. Defunct is live on steroids. You know, it's like super live. Right. right. <laughs> there you go. It's on, and that's that's the energy that we want to, that I have kept. I've been able to keep that energy. And that's that's the energy that is part of Defunct. Yeah. Live on steroids. There you go. <laughs> hey, well, Joe, it's been so much fun talking to you and hearing all these stories. And, you know, thank you so much for thank bringing you that. For I just want to say thank you for bringing the real music on the behalf of everyone watching, listening, and myself. Thank you for all these years of, of staying faithful to it.
Well, thank you for being a good listener and a promoter of this music, Scott, because we need people like you to let everybody else know that we exist and that uh, there is an alternative to everything. And live is, is, will always be live on steroids. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkandstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkandstuff.net, and linking through funkandstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the Media Services section at FunkinStuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at FunkinStuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on keep vibing, on vibing to the rhythm of the one.